Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here in the EcoCiv podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting the work that we are doing by making a donation at ecociv.org. For today's episode, Jeremy Lint returns to the podcast to host a fascinating dialogue with Eileen Christ. As listeners of this podcast will recall, Jeremy is a well-known author and a leading theorist of ecological civilization. He was a previous guest on episodes 2 and 13, so be sure to check those out if you haven't already done so. Eileen is an associate professor in the Department of Science, Technology, and Society at Virginia Tech, and she is the author of a number of books. I first learned about Eileen's work through her contribution to the 2016 edited volume, Anthropocene or Capitalocene. There, she developed an important critique of popular Anthropocene discourses, and she suggested Thomas Berry's idea of an ecozoic era as a way to inspire thinking beyond human-centeredness and towards a flourishing ecological future. Many of these same concerns about the power of language to shape our practices and about the need to imagine alternative planetary futures are present in Eileen's most recent work, Abundant Earth, Toward an Ecological Civilization which was published earlier this year by the University of Chicago Press. In this book, Eileen closely examines the current biodiversity crisis and identifies its primary drivers, which she summarizes as human expansionism and the human supremacy complex. She argues that moving beyond these drivers requires scaling down the human enterprise while also pulling back from nature to protect and restore vast ecosystems. In her wide-ranging discussion with Jeremy, Eileen begins by presenting a clear and compelling summary of her main arguments in the book. And among many other topics, they talk about the relationship between climate change and the extinction crisis, why human nature isn't to blame for the ecological crisis, Eileen's critique of the global capitalist economy, and her vision for moving toward an ecological civilization. And now, here's Jeremy and Eileen. I am very pleased to introduce two people to you today, Eileen Christ and Jeremy Lint. Eileen is a teacher, scholar, and author, uh, and, and Jeremy will give a more detailed introduction of her shortly. She is uh, most recently the author of Abundant Earth Toward an Ecological Civilization. Jeremy Lint is no stranger to our podcast, having recently been a part of a conversation with Naresh Girangrande and also the guest of one of our first episodes talking about ecological civilization. He is a close collaborator with our organization, and today Jeremy will be dialoguing with Eileen about her new book, Abundant Earth. Eileen and Jeremy, welcome to you both. Yeah, thanks so much, Jeremy, and welcome, Eileen. And uh, yeah, well, this is Jeremy Lent now taking over, and um, I'm excited to have this opportunity to talk with you today, Eileen. Eileen has had an illustrious career working and writing primarily on the interaction between the living earth and human society. And early in her career, she spent some time studying Gaia theory with the legendary Lynn Margulis. And um, she's been teaching now for over two decades at Virginia Tech. So as Jeremy just mentioned, Eileen recently came out with a new book, Abundant Earth Toward an Ecological Civilization, published in 2018 by the University of Chicago Press. And we're here today to talk about her book, which I recently finished and found very impressive. 
So, um, so Eileen, uh, thanks. Well, for... thank you. I just want to say thank you very much for having me, and it's a great pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I'm really, really happy that we we have the the chance to, to dialogue today. And so, so Eileen, I I found your book to be incredibly powerful and just filled with with passion that really came through in the writing, and. I'd say the book not only documents yeah, just the wholesale destruction of nature that's going on, but uh, I love the way it lays out the underlying drivers of this assault, where it comes from, and offering, offers a vision for how we can turn things around. And so perhaps um, for, for starters, for listeners who don't know the book, would you like to begin just by kind of summarizing for them what the book is about? Yeah, certainly. Um, so, so my focus is on, uh, on, on the crisis of life on the planet. Um, and uh, my motive is to deepen awareness of that crisis. Um, so I spend quite a lot of time uh, discussing the drivers of uh, biodiversity uh, destruction and, and looking at these drivers at the different levels at which they have been described. And also trying to sort of present them in a way, present this, the picture of what's happening with biodiversity in a comprehensive manner so that people get a sense of the systemic scale uh, of the problem. Um, so I, I, I spend a lot of time focusing on what in the environmental and science literature are called the direct and ultimate causes. Um, the direct ones are, are, have been known for a while, they're habitat destruction. Uh, mostly this is a stand-in for agriculture, which is the, uh, the biggest human land use. Also another big direct cause that has emerged recently in recent decades is the killing of animals. Um, and then of course there is pollution, different kinds of pollution, and more recently climate change has, has emerged as a factor. Now on this point of, of climate change, um, I want to note that, you know, there, that many people, it seems, are under the impression that climate change is really the major force behind life's destruction. And it's really important, I think, to clarify and understand that it is not, uh, at least not yet. So agriculture and killing wild animals are the two, uh, the two main uh, factors. Another thing that's really important to note, and that is a kind of a, a signal event of our time, is the synergies between different destructive causes. Biologists uh, often refer to this as the one-two punch or the, or the one-two-three punch. Um, for example, one recent study found that 80% of the threatened species that they looked at were afflicted by more than one cause. So this is a picture of what's happening, right? Species is, and places are coming under extreme pressures, and most of the time from more than one pressures. Now, so the direct causes, and then, of course, behind those are what environmental analysts call the ultimate causes or the bigger forces. And, uh, and those are an overproducing uh, uh, global economy that is, uh, that is just taking too much and using up too much from the earth. Uh, in terms of land, in terms of freshwater, in terms of fish, timber, and so on, and is putting out too much waste into the earth, more waste than the earth can absorb and recycle. So, so an overproducing economy, another piece of the picture is population, a large and growing human population, but most especially 
a large and growing global middle class uh, that I that I focus on uh, quite a bit in the book. Right. And then the other the other uh, big force is the constant expansion of infrastructure over the face of the earth. So roads and highways and pipelines, et cetera. Right. And in fact, right now we are in the midst of sort of an explosive development on that front. Mm-hmm. So. If we think about these these direct and big drivers, we can summarize them in in two words as human expansionism. The human factor is swelling and everything else is shrinking or becoming uh, impoverished or disappearing. So so what I do in the book is then ask, okay, well, why are we not halting human expansionism? And that really uh, leads me to focus on on the worldview or the ideological component of the ecological crisis, which puts human expansionism above questioning, makes it appear normal, and that is the shared worldview of human supremacy that I that right. I discuss. Yes, exactly, and and that's that seems so special that you're really focusing on these that that kind of deep underlying driver which i think a lot of the time people miss they they looking more at those kind of more incremental layers and um and then they miss this kind of deep underlying uh ideology as you call it and then towards the end of the book you then give a vision for what's possible do you want to just give a, a a little summary of that yeah. So what I discuss, what I come to the last part of the book to discuss is, you know, the solutions, right, or directions forward. Um, and I and I summarize them as scaling down the human enterprise and pulling back from nature. So I try to summarize them in a way that is memorable and in a way that is comprehensive. So scaling down really means reducing human consumption and reducing waste output, stepping these down immensely. So how do we do this? One important component is to move in the direction of lowering our numbers and and doing this within a human rights framework in the direction, I argue, of two billion. That is the number, you know, there's no, of course, absolute number, and maybe we'll get to discussing that piece. There's no ideal absolute number, right. but it's a good ballpark because it's a number of people that can be sustained by an organic and diversified agriculture, but also an, an agriculture that has been scaled down so that it is a modest subsystem of the earth system. Also part of scaling down, so that is one piece of it, but not the only piece of it. Part of scaling down is changing our economies. One way that we can think about this is through the motto of you know, reduce, reuse, recycle, creating economies that really embody that motto. So what does that look like? Well, one piece of it is creating what ecological economists call slow economies. This really means scaling down production output a lot especially output of the superfluous stuff and the throwaway stuff and the luxury stuff, especially output of constantly new models and new lines, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one piece of it, slowing down uh, the, the economy. And the other piece of it is really changing how the economy operates to, that, so that it makes stuff, we make products that are durable, that are made to last, that are fixable when they break, that are recyclable when they can't be fixed anymore, and that are biodegradable. So that's another piece of it, simply changing the economy. And a third piece of of scaling down 
means really uh, becoming mindful about this constant technological and infrastructural expansionism Mm -hmm. over the earth. This is this constant building of roads and highways and cell towers and power lines wherever and everywhere. Infrastructure in itself is, of course, not a bad thing, but we really want to be mindful about it and we want to err toward the minimal when it comes to infrastructure because it is very damaging for the natural world. So that's right. scaling down. It just it has to do with a vision of the human enterprise and how we really need to, to, to sort of reduce our presence and reduce our numbers and reduce how we do our economies and how we inhabit. To come to the other component of this last part of the book is connected with it. And, and I refer to it as pulling back. Mm-hmm. This means really moving in the direction of protecting the natural world on a vast scale, both the seas and the land, upward of 50% of the earth as free nature, as protected areas that are reconnected, so as to allow for the resurging of life, as allow for the flow of genes, of populations, to allow for the continuation of migrations to exist. Also, along with protecting, we need to become involved in, in ecological restoration. Right. And so now, why do we need these things? Well, um, first of all, we need them kind of immediately because protection and restoration are needed to avert a mass extinction. They will also, by protecting the land and the seas on a vast scale, will be able to soften the blow of climate change. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be able to stop climate change, but we can certainly soften its blows because all that green will absorb uh, the carbon, much of the carbon. And also, by moving in this direction of protecting and restoring the natural world, we can start to move over the course of the next decades and centuries toward humanity inhabiting a world of, of abundant life. Right. Is, you know, where, the t- where the title of the book is coming from. So that's this, this sort of a kind of vision and direction that I, I talk right. about, about what needs to be done. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for, for describing that so well. And yeah, it's really an, an inspiring vision. And it's one that I'd like to make sure um, maybe a little bit later on in our conversation that we go into in, in some more depth. You know, of course, this whole podcast spaces looking at this notion of ecological civilization. And I just find that such a powerful way of thinking about what's possible. And I'd love to explore that more with you very soon. So one of the things about your book and about that description is it's unusually comprehensive, I think, compared to so many other books on this topic of looking at so, so broadly at what's going on and also looking so deeply at the underlying drivers um, in order to look at solutions that aren't just incremental, but uh, really, really get to the root problems. So I'd like to sort of maybe kind of cut in on just a few of the things you said from the outset. First off is you mentioned this idea that your know, climate change or whatever we might call the, the climate emergency or climate breakdown we're looking at, that is really, if, if anything, I'm, I'm getting a sense from you like a symptom of something else. Or at least that's the way that I've been seeing it. So I'm in such agreement with you on this. I feel in a way, the climate emergency we're dealing with has been a wake-up call to so many people. And it's this great way for mainstream people to realize what 
an emergency we're at. But there is this danger that people get to feel like, well, if we can get down to, you know, 350 parts per million and CO2 renewables will save us or all this kind of stuff, that they're missing this deeper systemic way in which really the climate breakdown is kind of just one symptom of what is so much greater and so much bigger. So do you find yourself yeah. getting in, involved in conversations with people who are in the activist community about how they need to go deeper than just looking at climate solutions? Is that something that you find your, yourself in the middle of sometimes? You know, I think that that is, is happening more and more. For example, if you look at this emergent movement of Extinction Rebellion, right. they're not just talking about climate change, but they're also talking about extinction and yes. mass extinction. So I think that's increasingly beginning to happen, and especially after this latest UN study that came out and talked about extinction, I think it's increasingly sort of becoming apparent that it is as paramount as climate change. It's important, however, to realize, I think, that the climate crisis and the biodiversity diversity crisis, while they are entirely linked, and they will become more and more increasingly linked, and if we let them both go, eventually they will become one crisis, right? Right. While they are linked, they are also distinct. So one way to put it like kind of strongly, let's imagine that the climate was not changing, that we didn't have a climate crisis. Imagine that as a sort of a thought experiment we would still be in the midst of a mass extinction. We would still have a biodiversity crisis because the two main causes are the ways that we're expanding and taking over the land and the expansion of agriculture and the expansion of the livestock sector. And at the same time, this killing of wild animals that is occurring and the movement into natural areas for agriculture or to take whatever resources are deemed that people want to take. These are the fundamental drivers right now of of biodiversity destruction. Climate change is entering the picture and working synergistically with that and making things much worse. And ultimately, climate change is poised to really take the reins and deliver the final blow to biodiversity. But it's important to realize that they're not the same. So exactly going to your point, if we solve climate crisis, you know, somehow, whether, you know, however it might be, we somehow there's a, let's just imagine there's a technological invention and it takes the carbon out of the air, or there's a massive move toward different kinds of renewable energy uh, instead of fossil fuels. We have not solved the ecological crisis. Right. So I think it's really, really important to, to note that. And another important difference between them which has also kind of led me to really be very focused on this issue of mass extinction and to face it with the urgency with which it deserves, is that climate change has technological solutions, right? It has, to some extent at least, it has technological solutions. Mass extinction does not. If we allow mass extinction to run its course, it's final. This is the earth that we are bequeathing to human generations. Yes. And, uh, and to me, this is, you know, a, a really urgent issue to focus on. Yeah. And I'm in such agreement with you and I really applaud you for raising these issues because I don't think enough people are. Because, you know, like I sometimes have a, a scenario in my mind where, like, if you imagine some of the people heading up the big transnational corporations or involved in some of the major institutional frameworks that continue this kind of wealth-based, growth-based civilization that we are in right now, they're very likely looking at this situation going, we need to solve climate 
change because they're getting to be aware that the very underpinnings, the very structure of, uh, of this civilization is at stake. But of course, what they want to do is solve it in a way where they can continue this human yeah. expansionism and continue to essentially destroy the living earth that you are pointing out so clearly. And so I have this fear that those kinds of solutions may end up actually becoming successful enough that your civilizational collapse is averted temporarily. But meanwhile, the rest of the living earth just gets destroyed even more extensively. So I'd like to... And, and, and yeah. you know, just to comment right. on that, mm-hmm. because I, I agree with you fully, for me, the poster case is The Economist. Right? The, yes. the magazine, The Economist, <laughs> exactly. which and, is pro- and I saw you quoted from them a few pro- times. Yeah. Pro-capitalism, right? And The Economist has been on top of climate change for a really long time. Exactly. Right? I mean, you know, they know exactly what's happening and they know exactly, exactly the danger that this is a danger right. to growth and it's a danger yeah. to capitalism. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I, I, I'm so with you on that. In fact, I'm a subscriber of The Economist. I read it each week just so to get I. an understanding <laughs> of, yeah, I could almost yeah. see, see, see that from, from the quotes that you used. I, I think you and I probably have the same experience each weekend. You know, you read these articles, you go, oh, because here are sort of relatively more sort of enlightened people like, who are yeah. within, within their framework, they're thoughtful, they're understanding, they're, they're not driven by populist uh, politics and all that stuff. And yet they can't think outside of this framework, of this, this belief in this kind of neoliberal globalized system that they think brings benefits for all and just seem utterly blind to the destruction they're causing. So yeah, I, I totally get you on that. So Maybe we can turn our attention to this big theme in your book, which, of course, you know, as you know, is one that I have studied quite extensively myself in my book, The Patterning Instinct, is these kind of underlying ideology that has driven this sense of the naturalness of human expansionism. And you refer to it as human supremacy. And I also want to really applaud you, by the way, in fact, the way that I first discovered your name was in an article in the Science Journal, which, as most listeners probably know, is one of the mainstream, you know, high, high prestige, mainstream weekly science magazines that millions, I expect, of people around the world read. And I was just so thrilled to see you actually getting an article in science, actually talking about these issues of human supremacy. So I'd love to hear you describe a little bit more um, what you mean by that and how we can become aware of that as the underlying driver. Yes. Well, you know, I, my studies on that began by really uh, delving into the literature uh, on anthropocentrism and seeing that as the sort of the deepest causal layer of the ecological crisis, this sole focus on the human, but also the portrayal of the human as above the natural world and entitled, uh, rightfully entitled to the natural world. But then I became a kind of a little bit disillusioned with the term anthropocentrism because I, th- I find it to be kind of confusing. It's steeped in various debates. It really isn't entirely clear what it means. You know, a lot of times people will say, well, anthropocentrism, you know, human centeredness, well, how could we have anything but other than a human perspective, right? We're humans in a human body with human senses. So it becomes, it, it's not really entirely clear that what we are talking about here is hierarchy. Um, so that led me to prefer this term 
of human supremacy, which others have used in the literature, like environmental thinker Val Plumwood and uh, Derek Jensen. So it, it has been in the literature. And I think that the virtue of this term is that its meaning is just simply directly available. People hear it and they know what it means because they're able to map it onto you know, something like white supremacy or male exactly. supremacy. Right. So people understand that it's really about power. So I spend quite a lot of time, you know, discussing this belief system. I describe it as a diffusely shared uh, belief system of human prerogative that essentially what it is about is entitlement, human entitlement to kill use, take over, convert, you know, places at will, go wherever we please and build infrastructures wherever we please and so on. It is also in our time scaled up into something bigger, this kind of unspoken, uh, unstated sense that earth belongs to humanity, right? That, that earth is the planet of humans. Mm-hmm. Um, along with it goes the, the idea that non-humans are resources and terms that refer to non-humans as resources, that they are somehow lesser or beneath, that they are not morally considerable or very little morally considerable. So ultimately, it really comes down to what human supremacy is holding absolute power of life and death over non-humans, both, uh, you know, domestic and wild, and absolute decision-making power over all geographical space. Right. So it's a, it's a worldview because it, in fact, covers that much territory. And as I describe it, it's sort of like, well, the, well you know, once you see it, there's nowhere where you really, it, where it really cannot be seen. And, you know, the, the human supremacy is really, we could think about it as a metaphor, either the deepest causal layer or like the hub of the wheel of growth, of mm-hmm. human expansionism. The sense of sort of the rightfulness to keep growing our numbers, our economies, our infrastructure, uh, global trade. It's an ideology that really gives permission to growth. Right. To be and, <laughs> to, and to stay on course. Uh, it, it, you know, it makes human expansionism seem normal and seem deserved yeah. and seem destined. You know. Exactly. And yeah. and do you see this kind of ideology of human supremacy as being cross-cultural? Do you see it as something that other cultures beyond our sort of Western dominant culture right now have had? And do you see it as existing historically or particular to our current globally dominant culture? In the book, I focus on Western civilization. Uh, one, because human supremacy as a worldview has had, I think, the longest continuous history in, in Western civilization. So it really begins to emerge uh, with classical antiquity and uh, with the first political theories and, and philosophizing that ask the question, you know, what is the human difference? How is the human separate, unique, right. above? Mm-hmm. When those questions began to be posed and began to be theorized. So it has its genesis in classical antiquity. Then it was carried forward, and you do a really nice description of this in, in your book. It's carried forward through the ideas of Plato and Aristotle, it's carried forward into Christianity. And then that is further carried forward with the scientific revolution, and in particular with Rene Descartes and Francis Bacon, and becomes the world as, as natural resources. So the way that I describe this worldview, it's almost like a baton 
you know, that right. has been handed down through different traditions and different and really vast historical watersheds. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, there is the question, okay, and, you know, is this solely a Western thing? And my hunch about that is that it is not necessarily solely a Western thing. For one thing, we know that it's infectious, right? It's transmitted and it co-ops other people. Yes. Uh, and, and in fact, in the moment, it has, you know, we could say that it's a reigning ideology in the world, although, of course, it's also contested, right? But it's a reigning ideology. But at the same time, my hunch is that it's very much a kind of worldview that is connected with empire, that it's connected with social stratification, that the moment that, that there is this aggrandizement and movement toward wealth and power, that is really the, the other face of it, is regarding the natural world, is, the natural world is the source, is really the basic source of wealth and power. So yes. you have to objectify and put it beneath you. So that, and, and then with that movement, what happens is then you have to have classes of people that are doing the grunt work you know, mm-hmm. to get to, to, to get the resources and you have to have classes of people that go to war. So I think that uh, that worldview is very much tied with uh, with empire. Uh, but right. in, in my in my book, I, I focus I focus mostly on Western civilization. Right. I, I hear you about that. And I think you use a phrase at one point in your book, this phrase of something like the occupation of nature. And I really like that because it's a it's a kind of a fresh way of really driving that point home that it's not necessarily natural, but like in just the same way that we realize that a military force occupies another country and that can be illegitimate. So similarly, this thing that is generally assumed to be normal is also this occupation. Uh, And I like that. And now I'm sure you've come across and I have too. uh, There's a very common theme that comes out when these kind of discussions take place. People will say things like, well, yeah, it's human nature. And in fact, there was like a viral video that I was just enjoying and passing on just yesterday that is talking about how the the problem is with human nature. We need to like change what we're doing and all, all this kind of stuff. And I'm curious how you respond to this kind of approach. Like if the problem is human nature itself, then what are the implications of that? And if it's not human nature, then how did we get on this path to begin with? And what is an alternative worldview that could be as natural or maybe even more natural for human beings to have? Yeah, I do, I, I do think that this is a really, really important point because uh, so many people, whether they articulate it in a very coherent fashion, uh, or whether they simply have a sort of vague notion of a, about it, tend to see human nature as the culprit, right? Human right. nature as uh, as the problem and the and, and the cause, you know, of, of of the ecological crisis. And I see this idea as a very dangerous point of view. Mm-hmm. So I devote a chapter really to deconstructing that and looking at it in, in detail, because I do not believe that there is anything intrinsically problematic about human nature that is leading to the ecological crisis, but rather it is really tied with socialization and especially socialization into a particular human identity, into an idea of a human identity as separate and above. And so I, you know, I describe this notion that human nature is a problem as a, as a discursive knot, which is a way of thinking or a sort of widespread idea that really blocks the human imagination from opening toward 
alternative pathways other than the business as usual or toward alternative sort of ideas of the future that are that are very radically different from the status quo. And I think that this idea that human nature is the problem is such a discursive not. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, this, this notion has a lot of different faces. One is that, you know, we are, well, we are by nature aggressive and selfish and power mongering. Or another face of that human nature view is that we are over technological, right? We have, we overreach uh, with our technology, with our technology. Right. Now, this is a dangerous view because why? Because if human nature is the problem, right, then fundamental change, the immediate implicit inference is that fundamental change is really not possible. If yes. it's innate in our nature to destroy the, well, why bother to even try to change or why bother to imagine yes. a different world? So it leads to complacency and it leads to cynicism and it leads to giving up. Now, so what I do is I really take this idea head on and I argue that human nature is not the problem. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with us. First of all, if we look at human history, there have been cultures, indigenous cultures in particular, that have celebrated the natural world and that have sustained reciprocity with the natural world, in some cases over millennia. Oftentimes, of course, indigenous people did have impacts, but they were nothing, you know, by comparison, nowhere close to the kind of impact that colonialist uh, human supremacist cultures had. So that's the first point. The second point, which I think a lot of people kind of sidestep, is to really recognize the, the power of socialization, right, and, and, and enculturation. That when we look at societies, we can see that people pretty much will embody and will behave according to the principles and the values and the norms that they learn from their societies. This is what people do. We are social. Right? And so we absorb these norms and we act accordingly. We absorb the ideas, the values, and we reflect accordingly. And one point I make, and this issue of socialization can be further unpacked, because I think that human supremacy is socialized into people. And it's right. socialized into people from, from a very young age. But, you know, another point to notice is that, well, if human nature were the culprit and we're just really, that's just kind of who we are, then why is the ecological crisis so deeply problematic for so many people? Why right. are so many people grieving mm -hmm. and devastated? And many, many people are <clears throat> by mass extinction and, yes. and the, the decimation of, of non-humans mm -hmm. because human nature is no simple thing, right? And, and within us, there is also connection to the natural world. There is, there is deep love, there's alignment, there, there is affinity. Those things are there too. So, yes. so, uh, so what I do in that chapter is I really, I really want to look very closely at how people are socialized into this worldview that teaches us that we are separate and that we are unique in the sense of being above, because all species, of course, are unique, and that we are entitled and that we, in fact, are planet owners. So I spend some time really looking at that, at that yes. socialization. Yeah, of course, I'm totally with you on that. Um, and in many ways, the sort of core theme of my book, The Patterning Instinct, is how exactly your point, how actually it's culture that shapes how people see the world, and that actually um, shapes our values and shapes how history has developed. And I guess speaking to that, going to the other extreme, if we sort of look at human nature as one question, on the other side, 
I wonder to what extent looking at this current system of uh, sort of global transnational corporations really dominating so much of the way that almost every human being in the world gets to sort of uh, make sense of the world, right from internet to TV to everything they see around them, right from the outset as they begin to almost as soon as they're beginning to learn language. To what extent do you think um, we need to identify the structure of those transnational corporations, the structure of our global economy, uh, and this kind of growth-based infrastructure as something that has to be fundamentally altered versus the, the, I mean, on the one hand, there's this deep layer of human supremacy as an ideology. On the other hand, if we could change some of the fundamental ways in which this um, growth-based sort of corporate mind conditioning takes place, um, do you think that's a, at least is something that we need to be more focused on? Yes, I think that we need to be focused, and this is part of the sort of uh, urgency of the matter on all these different levels. But certainly the, the capitalist global economy is really the main engine right now that is destroying the world. It gobbles up the world after turning it, uh, representing it and turning it into resources. And it's oriented toward profit for shareholders, and it's oriented toward opulence for those who are at the helm. And it's fully grounded in consumerism. Right? Right. So, so really getting people to want more and more and to want what they don't need. And it's also oriented in terms of expanding markets. And it expands markets both horizontally in terms of pulling more and more people into the global economy. And it also expands markets vertically by polluting the minds of children. So it's very clear uh, that capitalism has to go. What is not clear is how uh, this is going to happen. It's very hard to predict this, right? Um, So one of the things that I argue in my book that we could go into is that I think that what we need to do is start to exit the status quo and to sort of work in the direction of imploding it, because it seems so very difficult to try to face this beast. Yes. But, uh, but mm-hmm. I think another aspect of this, which is often missed in people who are single-mindedly focused on neoliberalism and the neoliberal global economy, is that capitalism, it's not a simple beast. It's sort of a beast with many heads. Right? It, has, right. it has a lot of different constituents to it. So one of it, one of those constituents that is really fundamental and that, I, um, and that I discuss in the book, is that it rests on the conceptual foundation of turning the world into resources, yes. natural, quote unquote, natural resources, which unfortunately is a term that is just overused. People just use it without really looking at it critically and looking at the kind of implications and innuendos that it carries, which is basically that the world is made for people. So, but but this, this is part of the conceptual foundation of capitalism, that you know, Earth's living and non-living components are resources, the, the metals, the land, the oil, the gas, the coal, whatever, the fisheries that we can just go into. All of that is resources yes. that can be availed of and, um, and extracted and then processed into commodities and then have people buy those commodities. Right. So that's one thing that we need to question. It's a component. Like we, we should not see that as a piece of what capitalism is. It's internal to its structure. It's part of its ideological faith, right? That, that right. this notion exactly. of natural resources. And so we need to to question that concept as a, as part of questioning capitalism itself. Right. 
Another piece of capitalism is that it very much in its mode of operation, it rests on distancing and invisibility. This is, you know, most of the commodities that consumers use, the global middle class uses in particular, we have no idea, people have no idea where they come from. The vast majority of the stuff we have, we have no idea where it came from and at what cost it was made for nature, uh, in terms of nature or in terms of people. So this is another component of capitalism that we need to look at is the distance and invisibility that is built into its mode of operation. There are more pieces of it, and this is what makes it a complex thing. So, you know, of course, global trade is entirely tied up with uh, distance and, and invisibility. And global trade is all about this sort of immense movement of stuff around the world. 24-7, much of this stuff is really superfluous. And this level of global trade is incredibly destructive and waste-producing. So another piece of sort of looking at capitalism is that we need to question global trade. And of course, that's one of the core ideologies of capitalism today is global trade, and they call it free trade, right? We don't need to abolish global trade. Trade is, is not a bad thing intrinsically. It's actually a good thing, and people have always traded. It's a good way to sort of change, exchange ideas and to have, ideally, to have peaceful relations. It's a good way to, um, to have neighborly support. But global trade today is, is out of all proportions, so we really yes. need to vastly reduce it. Now, but moreover, capitalism is also tied to mass production which is tied to mass consumption and the two fueling one another. And mass consumption is really entirely tied up to population growth. And it's tied up with the growth of the global middle class. So population, which is often a lot of times when people are looking at capitalism, they don't want to look at the population question as if the population question has nothing to do with it. But actually the growth of the population very much fuels mass production and mass consumption. And if we look at the industries that are the most profitable industries in the world today, Mm. they are industries that have a vast clientele, right? Hundreds of millions of people, the high tech industry, the oil industry, the retail industry. These are, these are industries that are, that are, have huge amounts of people supporting their, their products. And, Let's talk about one more aspect of capitalism that also often goes unmentioned and I think is really very much tied to it today, and that is the nation state, the institution of the nation state. So the nation state, it facilitates capitalism. It's really kind of the handmaiden of capitalism. The two things work together. The nation state, for one, it carves up national territory and then delivers that territory to industries. But for example, by giving access to fossil fuel industries, land, giving access of land to fossil fuel industries, giving access of forests to timber industries, you know, giving access of land to the livestock industry, giving access of of the ocean to fisheries, all these things are facilitated. Industries and corporations are facilitated by the nation state and supported by the nation state. Moreover, the nation state makes all the infrastructure that enables all this stuff to be moving yes. around, right? Mm-hmm. And it makes all the laws that enable the, the movement of capital uh, around. And, you know, and it also hands out, as we know, vast subsidies to, to industries. 
So where I'm, you know, where I'm going with this is that, of course, we need to be questioning economic growth and more generally human expansionism, but that capitalism, which is the sort of the engine, the economic engine of growth, is not a simple thing. It, yes. it has these different facets. And I think that this is part of the reason that it's just so entrenched, right? It's got it roots sense. into all these different places. Yeah, it's got strong conceptual foundations that are inside the language. Yes, you know, right. it has strong roots into a way of life, a consumerist way of life that people have bought into. It's tied up with population growth that is occurring. It's entirely sort of dependent on the infrastructure that is being built by nation states and facilitated in other ways by nation states. So I think, you know, like a lot of times when people focus on capitalism, I think that that complexity is really not there. So we sort of get a kind of subtext that if only we tax mm. the CEOs, yes. you know, and yeah. cap their bonuses, yeah. then we would be on the way to the solution. And by yeah. all means, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. let's tax the super rich. I'm all for that, you know, and regulate them and cap their bonuses. But this isn't necessarily go going to yeah. address uh, the ecological crisis. We really need to actually focus in on all those different pieces yes. and, of it and change those. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, that's a really, uh, really well described structural sense of the, this kind of systemic interactions between these different aspects of this kind of multi-headed hydra or whatever. So um, it, it's almost as if this whole notion of human supremacy comes out in the way that you just described in the system we're living in right now. So that, that, that was really helpful. Thanks. And, and so just had a couple more questions actually coming from what you just described there. And then I'd like to make sure we spend um, the, at least a few, a few minutes before we close on this hope inspirational view of the ecological civilization that you you know that, that you talk so well about in the book but I I want to ask just a couple of things there from what you'd raised one is I think one of the best things that I enjoyed so much in your book was this really looking at the way language is used in um, enabling so much of this human expansionism that we talk about as being natural and this notion of valuing nature's resources or ecosystem services and all these phrases that we've both seen are used not just by the the capitalists, but we see environmental activists, people who really care about the living earth, wanting to engage with this predominant capitalist model, with this ethos that says, if we can only speak to them in their language, you know, if we can show them that this ecosystem is so valuable because of look at these services it brings to the human community around or you know then we can get people to see the, the language of dollars and cents they that means something to them and then we'll get them to change their behavior based on that and um I think this is so key because this is actually a lot of major drivers in the environmental movement talk in that language and I'd love you to just say more about what you think are the dangers of that and I, I, I yeah, um, any benefit to it too, because these are people sometimes who really, you know, have the best intentions and in wanting to really make a difference right now. Well, let me just start out by saying in general that um, that language, and I think this is a point that we, we very much agree on, um, is incredibly important. And it often is assumed that, you know, some of the language that we use, especially when it's used conventionally, is just neutral. Right. Or it's just descriptive and it's kind of innocent. But 
language is very much a lens. It can be a lens through which we look at the world. And so it, it comes with, with baggage, you know, about how we see the world, how we see our relationship with the world, our emotional connection with the world. Language carries all that and relays it. And often, and especially when we use language without thinking too much about it, without, you know, critical awareness, we, we are taken in by those innuendos. So I do, I do focus a lot on language, you know, especially what I refer to as the master concept of natural resources, and uh, which is natural resources is simply a way of couching, calling the world, first of all, notice the, the notion of natural resources, how broad it is. And it has this capacity that you could just, you can slap it onto anything because it has this elasticity in it, right? It's, it's just about what we can take and then resort, re, the, that word re, that what we can keep taking. So, yes. so the notion of taking is actually built into natural resources. And the fact that the word is so, it appears so innocuous and so conventional, it builds in the rightfulness of that taking. Right. But I also focus on some terms that are kind of spin-offs. They're more specific to areas and spin-offs of the notion of natural resources. So fisheries is an example of that. Um, and you're totally right. Many people use the word fisheries, including environmentalists and environmental analysts, and they also use the notion of fish stock. But let's look at those words and let's look at how those words are painting the world, what they are making us think about the world. And, you know, one of the things that they are doing is that they are stating that they are objectively describing something out there, which is really not something that is out there, right? I mean, what is in the ocean is fish. Uh, not fisheries, but the moment that you call something a fishery, it's there for the taking. So fishery, the notion of fishery or fish stock is internally connected with industrial fishing, which is one of the most destructive activities that has ever been produced. An incredibly destructive activity of just going out there and scooping up enormous quantities of creatures it means taking food out of the mouths of other creatures. It's incredibly destructive in terms of habitat when we look at what trawlers do to continental right. shelves and to seamounts. It is destructive in terms of what is simply called bycatch, which are all these creatures that are then thrown back into the sea, dead or dying. But when we have a concept like fisheries or fish stock, it kind of lends an air of normality to this whole activity of industrial fishing, which exactly. if we were to look at with a clear eye, we would see is not normal. And if we saw it as not normal, it doesn't necessarily mean we don't eat fish. It simply means we have to tread much lighter on the ocean. Yes. It simply yeah. means we have to prefer artisanal fishing and subsistence fishing over this sort of wholesale destruction of industrial fishing. Now, with respect mm -hmm. to ecosystem services, and, uh, you know, natural capital, I think that these are sort of, they're, they're also very much spin-offs of natural resources. It's sort of like, it's dressing the world and representing the world in terms of what it, of what it does for humans, which is reinforcing the message that the world is made for humans, which is been a message right. that has been a, around for way too long. So it's just simply reinforcing that message. 
So it's kind of like shooting our own foot. I mean, that's what we want to get away from, right? We want to awaken people from that idea. So when we keep using terms of that nature, I think that we, uh, we really don't make progress. Uh, you know, of course, I don't use those terms. I think of them as kind of a little bit soporific. It's much more yeah. important, yeah. I think, to sort of to get to the place where we speak to the love that people have for the planet right. and we, we awaken that love, which is there, but we bring that love to the fore. Yeah. And I think these kinds of terms are not doing that work. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for that. I, I think that is incredibly important. And it does feel to me that when people speak to the sort of mainstream establishment on their own terms, it's as if we sort of lost the battle before we even begin it. Because, you know, as soon as you use their language, it's all over. So, yeah, thank you for that. So, with the last few minutes we have, I'd like to shift our attention to this hope for what's possible out there, this, this sense of the ecological civilization. And as we look at the scenario that, that you paint out, certainly one big question I had, and I'd love to just go into in a little more depth here, is this notion that to get to that place, we do need to get that human population down by seemed almost like about 75% from seven and a half billion or so where it is now. And of course it's heading upwards to as little as 2 billion. And one question I had for you, this surprised me a little bit, and I know you've done a lot more research on it than I have. So I'd love to um, understand this a bit more. I had got, I had had the sense from studies from places say like the Rodale Institute and other places that agroecology, if implemented really skillfully, could actually be just as productive, if not more productive, if you look at the total system, including what is sort of the externalized costs as this whole industrial ag pesticide, fossil fuel based agriculture that we have now. But it sounds like you were saying in the book that actually, even if we do practice agroecology on a, a real basis, we'd have to accept that it would be less productive. And so we'd have to bring down the human population to make it sustainable. So perhaps you can just describe that in a little more detail to help me and others understand that. Yeah. No, I don't, I, um, I don't uh, believe that organic agriculture is less productive. Oh, okay. uh, this is something that the spokespeople of in, industrial agriculture it's not less productive. But what I argue is that we don't simply want to replace industrial food production with organic diversified food production. We also want to scale down the proportion of land that it takes. Right. So right now, agriculture takes enormous amounts of land. The figure that I use in the book is 40% of Earth's ice-free land is devoted to agriculture, uh, right. of which the biggest piece is devoted to animal agriculture. And actually, a figure that I saw just today hit my inbox from a new study is that, that now they're calling it 50% of the Earth's ice-free land. So we want to do two things. Yes, we want to convert from industrial agriculture to agroecological produ food production. Uh, but we also want to scale down that proportion so that food production is a modest subsystem of the earth and it doesn't take up the lion's share. I got um, it. Now, that having been said, you know, I think that um, the kind of work that the Rodell Institute is doing is incredible work to support uh, the organic food movement, because what they're showing, and they're, they're showing it empirically and through research, is that organic food production 
can produce equivalent yields to conventional or industrial agriculture. Yes, that's what I understand. Now, of course, those kind of comparisons, you actually have to look specifically at crops and you have to look at specifically at places and you need to look specifically at conditions. But generally speaking, it's a generalization that holds that organic can produce equivalent yields and sometimes even better. And not only is it kind of on a par on the yield front, but on top of that, Organic farming comes with incredible benefits, beautiful benefits, actually. It preserves the soil, right? It it preserves and even builds the topsoil. Mm -hmm. It uses fewer fossil fuels. Right. And it takes the poisons out of the equation, the synthetic pesticides and the fertilizers, and which is uh, the pollution that is coming from these agricultural chemicals is a huge problem. So for example, recently, just in the last few years, we've seen frightening drops of pollinators and insects more broadly, in good part because of the pesticides. And of course, fertilizers produce dead zones uh, in, in the world's estuaries. They're made you know, from fossil fuels and they, and they actually put out pollution in streams and rivers and, and they put out greenhouse gases. So we really, and this is something for the Dale Institute needs to be applauded. We, we really need to get away from this idea, which is uh, an absurd idea that we need to poison the earth, <laughs> right. that we need mm-hmm. to poison our bodies in order to make, uh, to make nourishment, yes. uh, to make our food. So, and then further, organic and diversified farming is, is friendly to wildlife and it creates habitat for, for wildlife. And it's, more nutritious because the soil is, is healthier. Yes. So, so in other words, you know, organically made food is not only compatible in terms of yields, but it also brings these additional extraordinary benefits uh, with it over and above the, the, yeah. the industrial agriculture. But the point that I made in the beginning is that it's not a simple picture because when we talk about agroecology, we really, a fundamental piece of it is bringing the animals back, the farm animals back to the land. And taking them out of these awful environments right. in which they are piled in order to make cheap meat, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the most egregious aspects of the world we live in, that we yes. do this to animals, right? So we have to bring the farm animals back to the land. But if we bring these billions of animals, we put them on the land, we wouldn't have solved the problem that it takes over the world. So we need to bring down those numbers. It means that we need to change our diet in the direction of plant-based, if not completely Mm -hmm. plant-based. But at the same time, we really need to lower our numbers. And food production is is only one piece of that, you know, the reason for that. As I discussed in my book, The Growth of the Global Middle Class, is another reason that people are converging toward a standard of living that has extraordinary impact. People are converging toward a standard of living, of having electricity, and all the things that go with electricity. So given this movement in that direction, in that kind of standard of living, what we really want to do is we want to make that standard of living modest, right? not American, right? But kind of more, um, more along the lines of European. We want to make it modest. We want to make it equitable. And we want to scale it down. That's a, a fundamental reason for moving in the direction of a smaller global population. Exactly. And I spend a lot of time discussing how this can be done. And the amazing thing that really it has to be emphasized is that it can be done 
through bringing certain fundamental human rights to people. Uh, yes. Bringing family planning, bringing, you know, getting all girls and young women into schools and bringing uh, comprehensive sexuality education, as I discussed in the book. Bringing these yeah. three things is going to have a huge impact. And then on top of that, of course, we need to have, we need this to be more of a public issue. We need more awareness about it. We need to break the silence about it. Mm-hmm. And we need to be directing a lot of resources, funding, and so on toward family planning and education. Right. And I thought, I, I thought that was a very, very powerful part of your book as you showed the, uh, the profound impact that those really, really positive developments could bring on that whole population issue. And, um, you know, as, as you come towards the end of the book, you, you paint just a, a beautiful and really well-defined picture of what an ecological civilization actually could look like. And you, you focus a lot on this core concept of what I think you call bioregionalism as a, as a sort of core structural element of that. So perhaps you'd like to, you know, as, as we draw towards a close right now, just sort of paint that picture a little bit for listeners as to what you think could be possible for a flourishing human future on, on a flourishing earth. Yeah. You know, I present bioregionalism very much as a model of harmonious inhabitation to move towards. So I'm, I'm fully in line with other bioregionalists that it's, uh, it's a beautiful model. Of course, we're nowhere near that. So I very much present it as a kind of a vision to ignite the human imagination. We don't know what the future will look like. And of course, building a, a global ecological civilization is going to be the work of many generations. So we don't know exactly what it will look like, but kind of presenting a vision of co-flourishing of human and non-human beings. That's the, really the core of an ecological civilization. So the big picture is, the largest context is that the human system, the human presence, the component, in particular settlements and food production that take up the most of the land, will want to become a modest subsystem of the earth. While free nature or wilderness becomes the sea within which human inhabitations and land uses are nestled. So Mm. it's kind of the the big picture is really inverting what we have today, which is by means of human expansionism, humanity really has become that sea. We have taken over and the natural world has become, you know, free nature, wild nature have become pockets that in many, in most cases, are just becoming increasingly and increasingly squeezed. So really to reverse that picture is, you know, to reverse that vision and allow the human imagination to be ignited by that image. What would it be like to preserve a thriving planet? Yes. With abundant earth, with, with, with its full diversity and its complexity, and have human civilization nestled within that. You know, to present mm-hmm. that vision. The question is, you know, the issue is like, why would we want anything different than that? You know, <laughs> right. so, exactly. so simply, you know, expressing mm-hmm. those ideas and putting them out there to allow people to free people to see that there is a different way to be on Earth. Right. right? That we can exactly. we can have all the things that we get from civilization and that we enjoy, but that we really have to scale down the yeah. human enterprise quite a bit to allow for the flourishing of the rest of the world. And so bioregionalism becomes an exercise to really investigate that. It's a very different model from the nation state. 
Yes. Uh, nation states are fundamentally territorial. What nation states do, um, and fundamentally human supremacists in terms of the core of how they operate and how they're defined, they annex a, a portion of the earth as their territory and, in fact, as their property to do what they, what, what they will with them. And then the boundaries of different uh, nation states are entirely contiguous. So what has happened when we look at, you know, at a map, at a geopolitical map, the earth has been divided among different nation states. And then nation states in cooperation with industries do whatever they want to their natures. And when nation states get enough power, economic and military, they can also do what they want to other people's nations, right? Right. So the, a bioregional bio formation couldn't be, couldn't be more different than that. The bioregional formation as a model, as a vision, is not an imposition on the land. But the idea is that peoples are going to fit within the land. So each mm. bioregional society is going to be different because it's going to be in accordance with the soils that are there and the climate. Geographical location, what are the animals and the plants there? the bodies of water, right? The particular food affordances of, of different people, of different places. Yes. Also, bioregional formations as a matter of their ethos, their, their ethic, they will include non-humans as co-citizens of place, right? As, mm. as integral with bioregional communities instead of, of abusing and exploiting and, and displacing them. We will honor, uh, yeah. you know, non-humans. Now, important piece of the bioregional vision is that the land at, between the bioregional communities is going to be free. That is to say, it won't belong to anyone. Mm. So we move away from this model that we have these contiguous boundaries, right, that are the cookie cutter on the face of the earth of yeah. human ownership, but rather human inhabitations are nestled inside a free world, a world that has been free to create the kind of abundance that it naturally creates yes. when it is free. So this is very different, very different from a commons. Okay. Commons is, it means, you know, that it's generally human property, but this is not a vision of a commons. It's a vision of a free nature that belongs to itself yes. and to the beings that co-create it. So again, it's sort of a model to think with, yeah, we don't know exactly what the future, of course, will look like, but it's a model to think yeah. with. That is a profound and radical vision. And I so, I so appreciate you putting it out there and describing it so well. And I, I agree with you that um, it's so important to have these visions of what's possible, even if it feels so far away from where we are now, because without it, we know we won't ever get there. But w with that vision, it gives something that can sort of pull our activities towards to at least aspire towards into the future yeah so and, and it so honors I'm, it honors the human imagination exactly, right and the power of the imagination exactly. and power and, of the human and that, mind and, and that is one of the great uh, features of 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 why human nature is the the possible the power to be able to pursue our imagination to have that imagination and then act accordingly so this has just been a, a, a great conversation, Eileen. And um, maybe just one final question I'd like to close with. As we hear both what is wrong with the world right now and where we could lead to, I think a key question so many people ask is, um, you know, what is it that I could be doing right now to be most effective to try to shift the direction our civilization is taking towards that positive future? Yeah. And so I'm very curious if you could just share your thinking on that for people who are listening. 
Sure, sure. Well, you know, um, I think maybe two broad points. One is that we all have different kinds of talents and different things that we are good at, uh, and different ways that we can make uh, that we can make a difference. So having clarity about what our personal power is with respect to making a difference, I think, is incredibly important. The other thing that I would mention, actually, it's kind of more than two, um, is really the importance of leadership, that we need people in leadership positions in, you know, the political system, the economic system, education, faith-based, NGOs, in all these spaces, entertainment, in all these spaces, we need leadership. We need people who are not going to be hiding behind, well, I'm just one person. I can't make a difference. We need people to really be stepping up and leading both in terms of making differences in terms of policy and in terms of shifting people's values. So I think that this is really very important, that the issue of leadership. And another point that I would mention is that I think is really, really fundamental to actually reinforce, because it's happening already, is moving away from eating too many animal products and generally, of course, scaling down consumption in the consumer world. But in particular, when we look at the developed world, we overeat the animal products. And the effect of animal agriculture is quite devastating. It may be the most destructive enterprise, and many people have described yes. it that way, on the planet. So beginning to move in that direction not only will be good for the earth, it will also be good for animals, but it will also be good for human health. Uh, because yeah. the other thing that we're, do we're seeing is these emergent diseases of affluence and the ways that they are spreading um, right now in the world and how much suffering that is bringing to people and, you know, what it means in terms of simply healthcare budgets. So this is, this is another really big issue to sort of move in the direction of really honoring our bodies as yes. complex ecologies in their own right so that we treat our bodies with good food, food that is not made as much as we can, of course, as, that is not made with pesticides and fertilizers, and that is not made through the suffering of animals. Right. So I think this is this another another thing that's really important. Mm -hmm. So I would mention those three things that come to yeah. mind, right? That every person has a talent. So what is it that you can do? You know, people have talent in different ways. The right. other thing is the issue of leadership. And then in terms of moving the world forward in new directions. And then this third mm -hmm. thing has to do with how we care for our bodies and moving more in the direction of, of really healthier eating and more plant-based eating. Yeah, thank you so much. And those are uh, three powerful, powerful steps that each of us can take. So thank you for sharing those with us today, Eileen. And thank you for just a really a fascinating and profound and inspiring conversation. And um, so just to remind listeners, um, Eileen's book is Abundant Earth Toward an Ecological Civilization, uh, published by the University of Chicago Press, and I highly recommend it. And uh, thank you so much, Eileen, for the great conversation today. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. I really enjoyed being here and talking That's to great. you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.